Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Good evening, children of the night. Come on into the cabin and find yourself a place to sit. We've got three stories for you this evening, so have a plate of food, something to drink, and get settled. A few weeks ago, in episode 162, I had mentioned that I really liked the movie The Mist, and I still credit it with my favorite horror ending of any movie I've seen to date, but I also hadn't actually read Stephen King's short story on which it was based. Listener Angie Bellinger had encouraged me to get around to doing so, and I borrowed a copy from the public library, gave it a read, and I'm glad that I did. The story was translated quite faithfully to the silver screen. The print story gives more nuance to the characters, and the protagonist is a bit more flawed as well. However, the ending is different and much more painful in the movie. I'd recommend you check it out. This evening, we have three stories for you. They're a bit shorter than our usual fare, so we won't keep you overly long, but I'd like to get this show on the road. Our first story is The Missing Ingredient by T. Fox Dunham. T. Fox Dunham resides outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, an author and a historian. He's published in nearly 200 international journals and anthologies. His first novel, The Street Martyr will be published by Out of the Gutter Books, followed up by Searching for Andy Kaufman from PMMP. He's a cancer survivor. His friends call him Fox, being his totem animal. His motto is, Wrecking Civilization, One Story at a Time. The time has come for your test, Grandma Darkhorn said. And not soon enough, idiot girl. But first, sweep the floor and catch the beetles. She extended a gnarled twig finger at the hearth. 
and scrub the cauldron, sweep the ash from the fireplace, then grind the wormwood and mugmort, and nay, not cast any magics. We boil stew tonight. The test. Gretchen had suffered under the witch's lashings for the last decade since Grandma Darkhorn had pulled her from the orphanage in London for apprenticeship. She grumbled at her crone teacher. She fetched the pine broom and raked the floor. She knelt and caught beetles between her fingers and dropped the wee leggers into a clay pot. Grandma Darkhorn enjoyed them with her tea. Then Gretchen scraped the cauldron clean of the residual ooze from their arcane labors. She hurried and cursed below the range of her mentor's gourd ears. "'Nay, not one spell,' Gretchen mocked her. "'Not one devil-familiar summoned to scrub the pots or push the broom.' Govern your tongue, Toad, or I'll teach you not more. You'll be a wench with parlor tricks entertaining for pennies at parties, and I'll live forever to snicker at you in eternity. Grandma Darkhorn rested her stumpy legs on the stuffed pig at the foot of the chair. She wiggled her twelve toes and sucked on her pipe. She leaned on her side and expelled gas, poisoning the atmosphere with a rotting reek. And speaking of dinner, get that cauldron gleaming. Then we start simmering. Tonight be the night. The test, the unfinished recipe, to stew the old power. The soup bones of lost Hades. Gretchen chipped at the crust sealed on the cauldron interior. She paused to tie back her raven feathers and yanked up her threadbare stockings. I'll gnaw on your bones, old crow. Grandma Darkhorn rocked and grinned like an old cat chewing on a young bat. The young be always so impatient, she said. Dread not. Your time comes soon, pupil. Now take this list of ingredients and fetch them in the wood. We have stew to brew. But you'll not know the last ingredient. This is your test. Gretchen read the parchment, her eyes struggling in the dim candlelight. The wind beat the windows and riled the roof thatch. She crumpled the paper in a fist. Mayhaps some hawthorn berries, Grandma Darkhorn said, to satisfy the craving. Gretchen pushed on her boots and cloaked herself in animal furs. She incanted over sharpened quartz. The crystal glowed by her words to light her way. She lunged against the door, battling the wind, shaking the cabin. The scimitar hung by the door rattled. She tumbled out into the wood and winter. She thrust through the whipping snow, seeking out a dead oak. She gathered bark worms from the moribund husk, the first ingredient on the list. She'll do it tonight, she mused, and finally be done with the old tyrant. The witch's left eye dim blind wouldn't see Gretchen coming from the side with scimitar in hand. She hiked to the abandoned graveyard and dug around inside a crypt until she gathered three finger bones. Tonight she'll not raise suspicion. She'll feed the old witch her last meal. In the pulpy swamp she gathered sipping leeches from her legs. She pondered the last ingredient for the enchanted brew, another test by her mistress. She cared little. On the return, she fetched hawthorn berries from the bush. With all her wares gathered and tasks satiated, 
she trekked back to the cabin. Wolves keened in the far woods. She paused, kicked her legs and howled, joining their choir. Then she burst through the cabin door. Careful now with those delicacies, useless wench. Now build a good fire, hot as hell and just as eternal. Long as there be evil in the hearts of men, so hellfire shall burn. Gretchen piled pine sticks into the open hearth fireplace. She struggled to hang the black cauldron on the crane above the wood. She incanted fire on her tongue and spat the flame on the fuel. The flames glinted off the scimitar on the wall. Her eager hand feigned gripping it in the air. Gather several buckets of snow. Gretchen obeyed and dumped the hoary frost into the cauldron. They fed the cauldron through the afternoon. She dumped in the gathered ingredients along with bat's milk, deer venison, mushrooms and herbs to spice the stew. As night cloaked the woods, the savory odor set her stomach rumbling. She fiddled her fingers, giddy from her planned assassination. "'I'll churn the stew, then take my nap,' Grandma Darkhorn said. "'Stir it evenly while I sleep, or you'll burn the stew, cork-brained wench.' "'Aye, mistress,' Gretchen said. "'I shall obey for as long as you live.' "'Forever shall I live, and so shall I teach you, if you can name the missing ingredient. "'Fail, and today you sup on stew, then anon worms shall sup on you.' Grandma Darkhorn stood on a stool and stirred the bubbling stew with a long spoon carved from a human femur. Gretchen grabbed the scimitar and giggled as she swung. With a clean slice, she severed Grandma Darkhorn's potato head from her bulbous body. Her head dropped and sunk into the stew. Her body collapsed. Gretchen danced on the balls of her feet, lifting her skirts and squealing. "'Sup well tonight, old crone,' Gretchen said. "'So I shall,' the head spoke from the broth. It bubbled to the surface and bobbed about on the boil. Which, you pass your test. Her floating head sucked down a portion of stew. It flowed right out of her sliced neck and back into the pot. Your head was the last ingredient? Grandma Darkhorn winked and nodded. Now, one last chore, the crone's head said. Fetch needle and thread. This stew is tasty, and I can't sup without my guts. That was T. Fox Dunham's The Missing Ingredient, as read by Veronica Geiger. Veronica is a voiceover artist and author. She is a co-author, voice talent, and producer for the Secret World Chronicle podcast, and she writes and world-builds for comic publisher Incubator Press. She is also an active voice at HG World in The Diary of Jill Woodbine, and she continues to read for authors in the realms of science fiction, fantasy, romance, and, of course, horror. Rumors exist of an alter ego fueled by caffeine trudging through the mire of higher education administration in pursuit of the letters P, H, and D. Said creature often dabbles in psychology and early adulthood learning strategies, possesses an affinity for comic books and small talking horses. 
and strives alongside her spouse to raise literary-minded geek children. Our second story of the night will be Paul D. Brazil's The Tut. Paul was born in England and currently lives in Poland. His first job was on a government scheme updating ordnance survey maps. He's also worked in a second-hand record shop and played bass in a couple of unsuccessful post-punk bands. He's also teaching English as a foreign language for more than a decade and still seems to be getting away with it. He is the author of A Case of Noir, Guns of Brixton, The Neon Boneyard, and a few others. His writing has been translated into Italian, Finnish, German, and Slovene. He has had stories published in various magazines and anthologies, including The Mammoth Book of Best British Crime, number 8, number 10, and number 11. He also edited the anthologies Exiles, an outsider anthology and True Brit Grit with Luca Veste, and regularly contributes to Pulp Metal Magazine and has an irregular column, Brit Grit Alley, at Out of the Gutter Online. He's a member of International Thriller Writers Incorporated. And now, Paul D. Brazil's The Tut. After enduring 45 years of a marriage that was, at best, like wading through treacle, Oliver Robinson eventually had enough, and smothered his wife with the beige corduroy cushion that he'd accidentally burned with a cigarette two fraught days before. Oliver had been, for most of his life, a temperate man, and had survived the sexless marriage, its colourless cuisine and half-hearted holidays, with a stoicism that bordered on indifference. But his patience had been stretched to the breaking point by Gloria's constant disapproval of almost everything he did. And then there was the tut. The tut invariably accompanied Gloria's scowl whenever Oliver poured himself an evening drink or smoked a cigarette. She would tut loudly if he spilled the salt or swore or stayed up late to watch the snooker. The tut, tut, tut was like the rattle of a machine gun that seemed to echo through their West London home from dusk till dawn until he eventually reached the end of his tether. Wrapping his wife's body in the fluffy white bedroom rug, Oliver supposed that he should have felt guilty, depressed, or even scared. But he didn't. Far from it. In fact, he felt as free and as light as a multicoloured helium balloon that had been set adrift to float above a brightly lit funfair. Oliver fastened the rug with gaffer tape and dragged the corpse down the steps to the basement. As the head bounced off every step, it made a sound not unlike a tut, and he had to fight the urge to say sorry. He'd done enough apologising. Oliver poured himself a whisky at eight o'clock in the morning and it tasted better than any whisky he had ever tasted before. Looking around his antiseptic home, the sofa still wrapped in the plastic coating that it came in, he smiled. Savouring the silence, he resisted the temptation to clean Gloria's puke from the scarred tissue that had been the catalyst of her death. Taking a Marlborough full strength from the secret supply that was hidden in a hollowed-out hardback copy of Jaws, Gloria didn't approve fiction and would never have found the stash there. He proceeded to burn holes in every cushion in the house. And then he started on the sofa. Oliver's brief burst of pyromania was interrupted when he thought he heard a tut, tut, 
tucked from the hallway. His heart seemed to skip a beat or two, but then he gave a relieved laugh when he realised it was just the sound of the letterbox flapping in the wind. Disposal of Gloria's body proved much easier than Oliver had expected. On a bright Sunday morning in April, he hauled Gloria's corpse into the back of his car, keeping an eye out for nosy neighbours, and drove towards Jed Bramble's run-down farm and the village of Innesmouth. Jed was an old school friend and fellow Territorial Army member that Oliver occasionally used to meet for a sly drink in the Innesmouth Arms, smoky, pokey snug. He was also a phenomenal lush. The plan was to get him comatose and then feed Gloria's body to his pigs. Oliver knew the farm was on its last legs, along with most of his livestock, so he felt sure that the poor, emaciated creatures would be more than happy to tuck into Gloria's cadaver. Perched on the passenger seat, Oliver had a Sainsbury's bag stuffed with six bottles of Grant's whisky, and, just in case, in his pocket he had a bottle of diazepam that he'd used to drug Gloria. Just outside Inner's mouth it started to rain. Tut, tut, went the rain on the window screen. At first it was only a shower, but then it fell down in sheets. Tut, 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 tut. Oliver switched on the windscreen wipers, but every swish seemed to be replaced by a tut. He opened up a bottle of whiskey and drank until the rain resumed sounding like rain. Outside the dilapidated farmhouse, Jed stood with a rifle over his arm, looking more than a little weather-beaten himself. His straggly hair was long and greasy, and his red eyes lit up like Christmas tree lights when he saw Oliver's booze. The cold Monday morning air tasted like tin, as, hung over and wheezing, Oliver pulled Gloria's body from the car and dumped it in the pigsty. The starving wretches took their meal with relish. Back at the farmhouse, Jed was still slumped over the kitchen table, snoring heavily. Oliver collapsed into a battered armchair and started to sweat and shake. He decided... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry, and some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs, no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Stay with Jed for a few days. 
keeping him safely inebriated until Gloria's remains were completely consumed. But, as the days grew dark, the touch returned. The tick-tock of Jed's grandfather clock, for instance, was replaced by a tut-tut. The drip-drip-drip of a leaking tap kept him awake at night and became a tut-tut-tut. The postman's bright and breezy rat-a-tat-tat on the front door seemed to yank the fillings from his teeth. He turned on the radio, but even Bob Dylan was tut-tut-tutting on heaven's door. The usually bustling inner's mouse High Street was almost deserted now. The majority of local people were cowering indoors, in shops, pubs, fast food joints. Oliver walked down the street with Jed's rifle over his shoulder. No matter how many people he shot, he still couldn't seem to escape the sound of Gloria's disapprobation. Tut went the gun when he shot Rolly, the postman. Tut tut when he pressed the trigger and blew Harry the milkman's brains out. Tut 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 when he blasted fat PC Thompson to smithereens as he attempted to escape by climbing over the infant school wall. Oliver heard the sirens of approaching police cars in the distance and realised there was only one thing left to do. Pushing the gun into his mouth, he squeezed the trigger. The last sound that he heard was a resounding tut. That was Paul D. Brazil's The Tut, as read to us by Sarah Clifford. Thank you, Sarah. The final story of the night will be J.C. Hemphill's Cheating the Shroud. J.C. Hemphill was born yesterday, so if you find his writing infantile, you're spot on. But you got to admit, he's pretty damn good for a toddler. He works in speculative fiction, specializing in horror and sci-fi, often blending and bending the two with the literary to create his own brand of dark tales. Look for his scribblings in Nameless Magazine, Stupefying Stories, Buzzy Mag, Space and Time, next fall's issue of S.T. Joshi's Weird Fiction Review, and many other publications. Or you can catch all that and more at jchemphill.com. And of course, link will be in the show notes. And now, J.C. Hemphill's Cheating the Shroud. All I do is stare. All day, every day, I stare at another face. The face never changes. It simply stares back. Our fate is the same. We remain pitted in a never-ending staring contest. The real kicker is neither of us could blink if we wanted to, which, in all honesty, is fine with me. I'm afraid if I close my eyes, they will never reopen. Sometimes I wonder if my staring buddy is thinking the same things as me. Does he share my concerns? Does his inaction burden him as it does me? I would like to know if he is happy. I'm not. I stare, and I think, and I yearn for change. Still, I am not unhappy either. From the vacant look on his pale face, I imagine his experience is the same. We are like two peas in separate pods. If only we possessed the ability to articulate our thoughts, time would pass much smoother. We could relate. I would tell him about my dislike for the liquid we live in, and that I wish someone would dust the glass so I could see clearly. He might tell me about his past or recite an amusing tale. We would be friends, and life would be easier for us both. While I think about the things I would tell him, I realize I wouldn't have much to offer. My knowledge is limited to him and his appearance. 
His face floats in a jar filled with a clear, viscous liquid. He has no hair, and his gray eyes echo with loneliness. His skin appears distended, ready to float off the skull, which I dearly dread happening. His nose is unique. It reminds me of a cancerous white plum with contusions disfiguring the bulbous end. He may think this funny, and we may laugh together. Lastly, I would tell him about the pink tail sagging from the base of his head that curls in a small bundle at the bottom of his jar. I do know one other thing about him. His grotesque face is like looking directly into hell. But maybe for fun, I wouldn't tell him, just to have a secret. The room we occupy is a dark, cramped closet. During what I assume is the day, a fractured light filters in, maybe through a grime-encrusted window or from the cracks of a door leading to a more exciting room. In my peripherals, I see the faint outline of other jars and other faces. They stoically line steel shelving, never speaking, never caring. I wish I had more to say in the hypothetical conversation with my staring buddy. I'd hate for him to think me a bore. I can't say how long we've been here. Time is a slippery eel, writhing from my grasp. This place is all I've ever known, but a sense of something more lingers. I recall another voice, a voice that shares my mind and calls himself memory. He told me once, maybe long ago, maybe sooner, that I was not born this way and that existence is bigger. For some reason I have chosen to ignore him all this time, so I'm not sure if I should believe him. He might be tricking me. But what he says sounds pleasant. I like the idea of more. What if I had a previous life? One where I could speak and move and connect with others? That would be nice. At least I would have more memories to occupy these endless hours. I decide to indulge memory. What harm could it do? Perhaps his perspective is greater than mine. I call for him, my voice echoing in the great gulf of my head. He doesn't respond. Wake up, I think, trying to rouse him. I'm sorry for cauterizing you all this time. Please forgive me. I'm ready to listen. No, a child's voice returns. Memory is angry with me, so I must gently coo and soothe him. Please, I respond. You were right all along. I've been foolish, naive. If you give me another chance, I pledge to you, I will listen. What more is there to say? The child's voice is gone, replaced by the crackling of adolescence. I'm getting through to him. You are wise, much wiser than I. Allow me to redeem my faults. Enlighten me to your knowledge of the world. Make me whole again. Pandering will get you nowhere. The crackling voice has smoothed with age, transmitting maturity. He will cave, for he must be as lonely as I. Of course not. My words only reinforce how foolish I have become without you. My intelligence has atrophied, my memories deleted. Allow me to appeal to your sense of reason. You and I are in the same vessel, a vessel lost at sea, drifting farther and farther from the coast. I believe together we can paddle back to safety. Together we can regain our sanity. What do you say? Memory does not respond. My spirit, assuming I have one, dissipates. Returned to emptiness. I discover a deeper void of sorrow than I thought possible. Once again, I am alone. All that remains is me, my staring buddy, and the bleak room imprisoning us. 
A creeping tingle surfaces inside me, followed by a single word. Harold. It reverberates inside me like ripples bouncing off the edges of a pond, gentle and smooth. Your name is Harold, memory says in a voice like leather, and you are ahead. I rejoice in his return. He has given me something I never knew I missed. He has given me my name back. Harold. Harold the Head. Thank you, I say. Why am I but a head? Things are as you wanted them. How could that be? I do not wish this. I want to escape this dusty jar. There is a fingerprint on the glass right in front of my eye, and the smudge eats at my sanity. I want to escape the smudge and this room. Most of all, I want to escape the gaze of the other head. I can't stare into his gray eyes and saturated skin any longer. Why would I put myself in a perpetual hell such as this? Because life is more valuable than death, he says. With the authoritarian doom of a televangelist prophesying the coming of apocalypse. Because the unknown awaits the eternal sleeper. Because heaven and hell might be the same place. You were afraid. You wanted to cheat. Cheat what? What does anyone want to cheat? The inevitable coming of the shroud, the paranoid creature with sharp teeth stirring in the back of our heads, the gloom which awaits us on the other side of the closed door. Death, Harold, you wanted to cheat death, and you have, in a way. Death stalks you, it desperately aches for your soul, but death cannot find you in this place. Vivid images began to flash. Memory is showing me my past. I was a young boy once, parted hair, blameless face, bruised knees. I'm playing baseball in a yard with a man who shares the glint of joy in my eyes. The image blurs, fast forwards, and I see myself as a young man. I'm getting married. A beautiful woman in a flowing white gown hangs on my arm as the man from my childhood, aged and wrinkled, takes a picture. Why are you showing me this? I ask. But the flashes of a forgotten life continue. I'm older, closer to my current age. The beautiful girl from my wedding is pacing around a hospital waiting room. She shivers and I drape my coat over her shoulders. A doctor enters, his eyes announcing bad news. Your father has passed, he tells me. He fought all the way, never giving up on life. Stop, I yell. Years pass, but the scene remains the same. I'm in the same hospital waiting room. The same doctor with the same news in his eyes is there. The beautiful woman is not. Your wife has passed, he tells me. She fought all the way, never giving up on life. A vague sense of truth surfaces, and I realize why I shunned memory in the first place. He reminds me I was happy once, and that hope is a mirage drawing me deeper into desolation. What is this place? I ask, afraid to hear the answer. You thought you would find happiness again, given enough time, so you set out to cheat death, but you never intended to end up here. The plan had been simple. You purchased a new body, one of wires and gears and plastic skin. You hired a doctor. Money was tight, so you found a surgeon to do the work cheap. You had your head and brain removed from your dying body, and when the time came for the budget doctor to remove your brain from its head, something interfered. You ended up here, on a shelf among many others, and it is here we wait. What interfered? What are we waiting for? The images return, and I see a man in a white lab coat as he places my severed head in a jar full of gooey liquid. 
His hair is white and his hands shake as he lowers me in. He smiles, revealing three angled teeth. Shadows move behind him. A light breaks. The doctor turns, raises his hands, falls. Men in masks grab my jar. I'm slashing as they run. I was stolen, I ask, knowing. More images blink in and out of focus like a blurry slideshow. I'm in the shadowed back of a van. The van is replaced by a glass building with a sign reading, Personal Kinetic Droids. I see money change hands. Next, I'm in a white room drenched in white light. A row of identical plastic men sit in identical plastic chairs along a wall. Each man has a white beard framing a black goatee and a satisfied grin. They all wear tuxedos and white gloves. The final image is the room I now occupy. Dark, silent, haunted. I am you, Harold, he says. The trauma split us apart, but together we form a single consciousness. I am your memories, your knowledge, your wants, needs, desires, emotions, spirit, everything human. You are the naked instincts, the nerve endings. You are the impulses, fear, hunger, pain, survival. They will leave you intact. They need you. You will become the processor for one of their servant droids. But me, me they will erase. I am of no use to them. That can't be, I protest. Survival, Harold. You wish to escape the end. Wish granted. With a new rust-resistant body, the end will never come. Enjoy your name, Harold. When I'm gone, you won't remember you had one. I push him away and he doesn't speak again. I'm returned to loneliness in my staring buddy's bloated face. The brainstem coiled beneath him scares me. It looked like an oversized rat tail. A white radiance fills the room. The overhead light shocks my relaxed pupils, blinding me. I move. The sound of footsteps goes with me. We stop. I'm set on a table. I hear a pop above me, and the pressure in my head changes. Hazy outlines encircle me. They're dark and menacing, like monsters circling a sleeping child. A sharp pinch on each side of my face startles me. I try to see what is clamped to my skin, biting, but they're too far back. The clamps pull up, tearing my soggy flesh. If I could scream, I would. I'm lifted out of the comforting liquid into the air. The oxygen refreshes me, but already I sense my consciousness fading. My eyes are open, but my vision is gone. Sleep lulls me into its embrace with promises of a tranquility. When my vision returns, warmer light greets me. I am pleased to be out of the bright white room. Time has passed. Shadows still encircle me, but they no longer appear cruel. I call out to memory, hoping for his knowledge to enlighten my situation, but he is gone. My vision clears and details come into focus. The fingerprint smudge and liquid is gone. Instead, I have a body and arms and legs and feet. I'm wearing a tuxedo and white gloves. Each figure around me has golden hair which shimmers in the warm light. One man, one woman, one boy, and two girls. They smile and laugh and clap. They are happy to see me. I am happy to see them. I wonder if they think the same things I do. Do they share my concerns? Does their inaction burden them as it does me? The smaller girl, with dimples at the edge of her smile like exclamation points, turns to the woman. Mommy, will he clean my room? Of course, honey, Mommy replies. And the bathroom, too? Honey asks. The salesman said PKD7 will clean anything. 
They are nice. They have given me something I never knew I missed. A name. I am PKD7, and I can clean anything. That was J.C. Hemphill's Cheating the Shroud, as read by, well, me. As always, link to my personal blog will be in the show notes, but otherwise, you've heard enough of me. Thank you for being with us again, Children of the Night. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.